0: Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host Josiah Meyer and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And we're going to do part two of my uh, drive home from ANIC conference. And uh, we're going to talk about um, kind of my feeling right now towards uh, the Anglican Church or the ANIC, the conservative portion of the Anglican Church that uh, I just went to. Uh, and we're going to look at um, a few things: liturgies, we're going to look at um, communion, baptism, and what else? Is there something else? Oh, ecclesiology—how they run their church—and I'm going to kind of run over it quick. Just because this seems to be kind of how they do it, and and then talk a little bit about um, my feeling about it. So, in the in the previous podcast, I hope you caught that one already. It'll, this podcast will make more sense to you into to that one first. Um, I talked about um, the history of Anic and uh, how they came to be, and how I came to be part of an Anic church. Um, so I come from a midnight background, right? Um, parents were were Baptists and Brethren, and then we went to a midnight church. And they moved on eventually, and I stayed, and I kind of called the Mennonite Church my, my home base uh, to this day. And uh, in the podcast, Reformed and Midnight, I talk about how um, I did find that I need to go outside of the Midnight Church to find some answers. Uh, and so I would say that I have a Reformed head and Mennonite hands, because my, my doctrines and ideas are more f- from the Reformed side of things. But how I live my life and how that works out is going to be a lot more Mennonite. Uh, and I, I feel like the two fit together quite well. So, that being said, um, the way that Mennonites tend to do church is very different from how Anglicans tend to do their church. Uh, they're kind of polar opposites. Um, mind you, there is a lot of diversity within the Anglican church. Um, but, okay, so the Anglican church that I go to, Annick uh, St. James in uh, Lenoxville... It's what you call low Anglican. There's low and high Anglican. High Anglican churches basically look like Catholic churches. Uh, They have very elaborate dress. They have very elaborate buildings. At least they used to until they lost them all uh, during the split. Um, And you know they do things in a very liturgical, very ceremonial way. Um, And you would say, well, then they, they must be Catholic. They look Catholic. They smell Catholic. They must be Catholic. The difference between that is that when you scratch a Catholic, you get the doctrine of Trent. You get Catholic ideas and doctrine. When you scratch an Anglican, even a high Anglican, what you get is the Protestant Reformation. Uh, And so there's a fundamental difference, even though they might look very, very similar. But we go to a low Anglican church. Uh, The pastor usually wears... You know, blue jeans He's He just got ordained So he wears the white collar now With a black shirt But he didn't didn't always The founding pastor Didn't always wear the white collar um, And we have Throughout the course of We have a few songs And then on slides We have a few things That we read every Sunday um, So we read the Lord's Prayer Every Sunday We read the Shema Every Sunday Which is Hear O oh Israel The Lord is our God The Lord alone And you shall love the Lord your God With all your heart With all your soul and With all your mind we read that every Sunday um and then we sing the doxology every Sunday that praise God from whom all blessings flow All and uh two different tune, I think <laughs> um and uh we do communion every Sunday and before we do communion there's uh, a reading that we do um asking God to forgive us for our sins the things that we have done that we should have done and left undone that we should have done um so that's our liturgy it's very stripped down very basic a few readings on the slides and um, communion every Sunday so and and then some Anglican churches would be way on the other extreme of it and so part of the conference was talking about um, how you know Anglicans from both sides of the spectrum have realized and reaffirmed that what matters is not how we do things not how we dress not how we look not the smells and bells, but the gospel, and the gospel that they're sacrificing for and paying a tremendous price for, and so that was really reaffirmed by um, uh, numerous times in numerous ways by various conference speakers. That and I appreciate that. Um, that being said, what's a Mennonite doing in an Anglican church? Doesn't the um, don't the readings and stuff just drive me nuts? Actually, no. I love them. I love them. I love liturgy. Um, and it was something, you know, as a worship leader and a worship director in my home midnight church, um, I brought that stuff to some extent. I didn't, I didn't feel like I... I, um, I didn't want to be a crusader and push an agenda. But as far as, as I felt people were comfortable with it, and as far as I had time, I really relished and really enjoyed... Um, doing one song, leaving the guitars or the piano playing, and then reading something on the, on the PowerPoint. Reading a scripture. Reading um, a quote from the other church fathers. People really liked it. The one Sunday, I kind of had a fairly liturgical Sunday, and I, and I had been reading the other church fathers. And they pulled up a bunch of Ignatius and, and a few other people and then paired it with uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount put songs in between that made sense of it all and it just flowed and it was like "Oh, people loved it and I loved it and I was like why don't we do that all the time and the answer of course is that it's a lot of work it's a lot of work to throw all that stuff together and to make sure it kind of fits and flows and um, you know come to think of it church in you know the, the Mennonite and the Baptist tradition it's a lot of work um, because every Sunday you come to it and you have to kind of start from square one um, you don't know what the songs are going to be. You don't know what the topic's going to be. As the pastor, you don't have any idea what, what scriptures you should preach on, unless you announce a series, which would be a great idea. Um, there's no continuity week to week, necessarily. Uh, one week, Pastor Joe wants to preach on, on abortion. The other week, Pastor Mike wants to preach on, um, I don't know, Second John, whatever. Um both great topics, but there's no continuity, and the worship leader doesn't know what's going on, there's no continuity for him either, um, and, and every week you just start from scratch, and um, not that it's a bad thing, you know, uh, you don't get bored <laughs> as easy, um, although, that being said, you do fall into tr- into routines, don't you? There's a certain way that you do the offering, there's a certain way that you do a song after the sermon. or there, there are certain patterns that you fall into. But they're kind of patterns of habit. It's not like they had a council and, and people, you know, through prayer and fasting decided how it should be. It just just happened that way. I mean, one day, somebody just got really excited about changing something in the service and they decided to put the offering at this time instead of that time. And people liked it. And so that just became the way it was, you know. Um, a lot of things in that style of church that I grew up in, that I contributed to, that I loved, that that nurtured my soul, um, it's kind of arbitrary. There's not really a reason. Um, And so, uh, to... There there was, um, you know, Francis Schaeffer. Everybody knows Francis Schaeffer, not everybody. He was a really famous guy, wrote in the 70s and 80s. but influence continues to this day. Really important on worldview and philosophy. Anyways, his son, um, forget his first name, last name Schaefer, obviously, um, kind of was raised, you know, within the center of evangelicalism. And then, but his dad apparently had anger issues, and and he blames him for whatever, not raising him right. And and so he's he's got kind of a series of books about. You know, growing up under Schaefer, and, and then he kind of became Eastern Orthodox, and now I think he says he's a Christian atheist or something, and I don't know what he's doing. Um, but I, li- I listened to an inter- a radio interview with uh, Francis Jr. when he was an Orthodox. He switched from Evangelical over to the Orthodox Church. And, you know, I could erase that if I'm going to repent instead. Um... His journey is his journey, and I shouldn't trifle with it. Um, he went through real pain as a child, and um, I shouldn't trifle with that. So I'm sorry if I if I handled that in trivial or trivialized his, his journey. Um, and I pray that that God will bring him to repentance. Um, but as he moved from evangelicalism over to an Orthodox Church, as many people have, have done in the past ten years, twenty years. Um, and then he his father died so he came back and did a really evangelical uh, Sunday service and he was reflecting on that with uh, he was doing an interview with the Canadian uh, interview guy um, can't think of his name he's bald he's tall he's funny he's the Howard Stern of Canada ah oh, what's his name he's to listen to him all the time anyways can't think of the guy's name um he said, you know, can't stand evangelical worship services anymore. And he said, sometimes I just, I just get tired of something that feels like the worship leader the night before with his guitar just came up with it on the spot. And he wants something that had roots and that had history. And um, liturgy for him spoke to him. And liturgy, I think, speaks to a lot of people. Um, There's a book called Sacred Pathways that talks about about four or five different ways that people experience God. People experience God through nature, people experience God through music, people experience God through learning new things, people experience God through art, Um, and people experience God through silence. I'm not sure if I got them right, but it's something like that. Um, And influenced by modernity, um, many churches have only focused on the intellectual aspect. Only focused on the sermon, and we're missing uh, the connection of with people that connect with God in different ways, and the connections that we have because we all have a different. We all connect on some level emotionally, physically, you know, in a sensory way with God, um, and the older church traditions, including the Anglican one, um, have ways of connecting with us. So. Anyways, um, that's the liturgical part of Ancanism. Um, I don't mind it. I should mention that, uh, there is a big difference. Anglicanism and Catholicism look very similar sometimes. Again, if if you talk about high Anglicanism. Uh, but doctrinally they're very, very different. So, um, Catholicism is actually a doctrinal belief that, um, it is the action of the sacraments that save you. It is the moment that that water hits the face of the baby. That's a saving action right there. It's the moment when that, that bread, which has become the actual bought bread, or the actual body of Christ, touches the tongue of, of the parishioner. That's the moment when their soul is fed. It's, it's, it's the literal, physical food and water that's what does it. Um, and kids wouldn't believe that. They would believe that it's a, it's a symbol. It's a living symbol. It's something that is meant to be very, very meaningful, very powerful to you. Um, but it's not something that, you know, ratchets you into the kingdom, no matter where your heart is at. Um, it's, your heart has to be there. Uh, and if, if your heart isn't in it, then, then the symbol means nothing. So this is pushing us into the second subject, what about communion? Why do you guys do communion every single Sunday? Um, This is something that I have always felt like we should do. Why don't we do communion every Sunday? Jesus said, do this as often as as you do this, remember me. And it kind of seemed like Jesus was saying, every time that you guys sit down to supper, break bread, dip it in the wine, have a little thing, and remember me. I kind of feel like Jesus meant for communion to be every time that you sit down and eat. I don't know if I'm just weird on that. Um, but once a week, alright. That's that's cool. That's good. Um, once a year? Really? What? Why? <laughs> Why only once a year? Uh, it's important. It's important enough for Jesus to say, uh, do this as often... How does that verse even go? Um, as often as you do this, remember me. Uh, it seems as though we're supposed to do it often. Um... And again, we get back to uh, the sacred pathways—the different ways that people connect with God. Um, Let me just share. I had a moment. We like we had communion here again. I mean, we have it every week. I I love it. I, it speaks to me. Um, They had, uh, like, we had a conference, right? So all day you're sitting in church all morning, you know, it's worship and stuff, and then you sit through conferences, workshops, and it's all good stuff, but, like, all right, like, it's a lot of sitting in church, right? And then they had a 10th anniversary celebration. It started at 7.30 at night, and they are going to celebrate, and they had some good speakers and and good stuff, uh, and they had some more worship. The thing took two and a half hours. (laughs) It was 7.30 till 10. Um... And uh, my friend leaned over to me and said, this is Anglicans gone wild. Because <laughs> it was just going on and on and on and on. Anyways, uh, towards the end of it, they had communion. And I was like, how are they going to get 150 people to have communion? And it took a long time, but everybody got up there and drank for one of the cups and uh, ate one of the wafers. And um, I had a moment. Um, hard to explain how these moments happen. Um, it, was, it was one of those moments that was so mundane what I mean by that is sometimes in life there's something you do and it's the most natural the, the only thing I can compare it to is going to a funeral and, and your emotions are all locked because you just can't process it and you take a handful of dirt as often as the tradition is and you walk past the casket and you throw it on, on the casket and you walk away that motion of taking a handful of dirt and throwing it down, it's the most natural motion in the world. It doesn't, it's just, boom, you, you just do it. And yet, at that moment, which is the most mundane, normal, everyday moment, you realize, I just did that. I just did that. I just participated in burying my dad, my brother, my son, whoever, my grandma, you know, I went up there and I took the bread, took the wine, and just as I handed the cup back to him, I just had that moment of, you know, just handing a cup off, like it's no big deal, you know, but I just had that moment, I just did that, you know, and I just went back to my chair, and just wept, and wept, and I seemed to beside my friend I didn't know super well, and I was really embarrassed Uh, And I was trying not to shake too hard or, or let the tears go all over the place, but I was just. Do you realize what Jesus did for me? Because of my sin? And do you realize that I reached out my hand and I took his flesh and I drank his blood so that I could live? Because without it, I would die. I just did that so I don't know how often you guys do communion but I'd be fine with us doing it every day (laughs) Um, because you know for the most part it's not that way Um, it doesn't hit me that way but sometimes it does and we have people from all walks of life but they all need to know that they're wicked sinners that God loves them so much that He would die for them. And that His death gives them life. And when they eat His flesh and drink His blood, metaphorically speaking, they have life in them. And that connects. It connects to different people. It connects at different times, sometimes more than the servant. Sometimes along with the servant. Sometimes through the worship, it makes sense. Um... But it doesn't bother me that we do communion every week, uh, not at all. In fact, um, I kind of rebel against the. Um, I should go back and tell you a bit of history here. So, in the Reformation, which is where all this stuff starts, right back in the 1500s into the 1600s, we've got the Protestant Reformation, and you had Lutherans breaking off, right? And they, so the Catholics believe that. Um, communion is the literal body and blood of Christ Um, and they would talk about the uh, the essential properties versus the accidents and I actually talked about that in my podcast on uh, on Thomas Aquinas or Aristotle. I can't remember but um, Aristotelian uh, philosophy says that uh, no I'm not going to go there because the Catholic view isn't super important um take too long to explain but Catholics believe that the bread and wine literally are uh, the bread the the body and blood of Christ it doesn't look like it but they are Um, and uh, just as just as if a car smashes and gets burnt to a crisp it might not look like a car but it is a car it's just the externals that have changed but the internals have to stay the same with communion for Catholics, it's the opposite. The externals have not changed, but the internals have changed. The essential properties have changed, uh, but the accidents—what you can actually see, what you can smell, what you can taste—have not changed. It's the quickest way I can explain how Catholics see it. Um, Lutherans would say that there is a symbolic or a spiritual presence. Spiritually, uh, it is the body and blood. So that's a very high, still a very high view of. Um, like, Jesus is there in the community. It is his flesh. Uh, Calvinists and Enkins would tend to say... Enkins again, yeah, it's, it's a broad spectrum. But they would tend to say it's a symbolic presence. It's a living symbol. I'm going to come back to that in a second because that's where I landed when I wrote a, wrote a paper on it way back in seminary. Uh, and then Zwingli, over in Switzerland... Uh, was responsible for starting the Anabaptist movement, which became the Mennonites, which eventually, uh, although they don't know it or recognize it, came to influence the Baptists uh, in a a big way, uh, would say it's just a symbol. Or it's it's just... um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's similar to what the Calvinists would say, but they would say it's just a symbol. It just shows us something that we already know intellectually, uh, and so there isn't really a purpose for it. You know, Zwingli was famous for... He would go into a church with icons all over the walls, with uh, you know these statues and all this fantastic wood- woodworking and stained glass windows. He would smash the windows and he would whitewash the walls. Why? Because... People were confused by it. People were having pilgrimages to these statues. People were were attributing magical significance to them, and he wanted to just be done with it. Commendable motivations. But the descendants of of Zwingli, the Mennonites and the Baptists, tend to meet in just whitewashed walls, just bare church, um, with no art, with no sensory connection with people. Um, And you know, art connects with people. Senses connect with people. And I love that G- that God... No, before I go there, let me give you another illustration. Uh, a wedding. Is there a difference between getting married, for example, at the Justice of the Peace? You can go there with your fiancé, you can sign the papers, you can maybe have a few friends along, you can take some pictures. You leave, you're married before God married before man everybody agrees you're married it's no question no controversy you're married alright or you have the whole the wedding you invite everybody you do the big thing you buy the dress you hire a photographer you you get a caterer you get a location you you get a church you get a pastor you get the documents you, you do the whole rigmarole right and at the end of all that married is there a difference between the two I want to submit to you there is a difference and all that sim- symbolism and all that imagery and all that energy that goes into making a wedding a wedding and making it a big deal making it an event that you look back on and say that was our wedding for, for good or evil <laughs> uh, for better or for worse you know some, yeah whatever it was a big deal Whether whether everything went according to plan or not, it was a big deal. Um, That is... It makes it such a big deal for you. And it all has significance. It all has meaning. It's so much better than just going to the just and the peace and signing some things and in and out in 10 minutes and away you go. Um, Which at the time, I thought, man, that would be so much simpler than than all the time and energy we're putting into this. But I'm glad I went through with it, right? I'm glad did that and and sometimes I feel like the descendants of Zwingli uh, how we do baptism and how we do communion is a lot like just going to the justice of the peace and stamping a piece of paper and leave uh, when I, I think that other denominations it's a lot more like having a wedding and having a ceremony and making a big deal out of it and you know when we make a big deal out of it sometimes it really connects with people and you know Sometimes God wants to preach the gospel to our head. I mean, to intellectually know, okay, hell is real, I'm a sinner, God is, is holy, and, and, and I may be saved from my sins. Sometimes God wants to preach to our heart. And words, yeah, I mean, sometimes words can get down there, but sometimes words are are a clumsy instrument for touching our heart. That's why we buy our wives flowers, you know, and, and we do clumsy attempts at, at art, and we we use facial expressions to communicate to hearts because words can't always get there. And I believe that God gave us communion and baptism. Because no matter where you go in the world, there's something to eat and something to drink. In Africa we did communion with coke and baguettes. How's that for spiritual? But no matter where you go in the world, it's a Muslim country, the alcohol is hard to find, and Coke preserved well, Uh, and you can find it. They weren't trying to be emergent or anything like that, it's just what we had. No matter where you go in the world, you're going to find something to drink and something to eat. And God went and said, I want people to remember what my son did. I want to give them a symbol, I want to give them something that speaks not just to their mind, but to their heart, even to their bodies. Because I want all of them to get saved Not just their brains And communion is supposed to speak to us that way Um And so Communion every week Go for it Alright well what about baptism Baptism It's kind of a big deal Right Baptizing babies Um I went to You know I'm a Mennonite Which is part of the Anabaptist tradition Um also have some Baptist DNA my wife is raised Baptist um, I was raised Baptist to a point as well and both Anabaptists and Baptists um, hold as central to their belief that it is adults that get baptized if you're not capable of making the decision I want to get baptized then you're not qualified to be baptized Uh, there is no way that infants should be baptized so, this is a big issue. Uh, I was actually going to do a podcast on this, but I guess I'm doing a podcast on it now. So, we'll just keep going. Um, I'll probably do a podcast specifically on these because I want to go through the paper that I wrote on this. Uh, I don't have all the research and bioverses and everything ahead of me. So, uh, you know, look forward to that. Um, I don't believe in infant baptism. But I appreciated when I attended a service. We, we had one, uh, was that a year and a half ago or a year ago? right now um, Bishop Charlie officiated and he said very explicitly there's some people that believe in infant baptism there's some people that don't and um, they're both accepted they're both fine and it seemed as though he was almost leaning towards um, almost leaning away from infant baptism uh, in how he presented that maybe that was just my perspective although both, both are accepted so how in the world can I even say that it's moderately okay that some people are baptizing babies. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I can sit through a service and say that was tremendously meaningful. Uh, in fact, I took pictures and and uh, posted them and, and shared them around, um, and I, I didn't say what you're doing is wrong. In fact, I affirmed what you're doing is right for you. I wouldn't do it, but it's right for you. How could I do that? How could I say that? How could I believe it? Don't you know that... I mean, I mean, here's a serious point. Here's a serious issue for Mennonites who have a deep connection to their Anabaptist roots and know that people were drowned. Um, people were executed through drowning because they stood up for the belief that adults should be baptized and not infants. I want to submit to you that the issue then is different than the issue now. This is a different sort of infant baptism when they had that. Infant baptism, at the time of the Reformation, was tied to citizenship. And if you were a citizen of France, you were baptized into citizenship. And at the time that you were baptized, you became a citizen of France. And this was carried over into the uh, Lutheran churches, into the Reformed churches, and this was the point of depart for Zwingli, who started the Anabaptist movement, but when he saw the implications of this, he, he stopped, or at least that's a story that I've heard and that uh, the Anabaptists will tell, that he was moving along, following scriptures word for word, trying to figure out how to had to be a Christian, just following scriptures, willing to pay the price until he got to this point, because all of citizenship um, at that time was based around baptism. And what he realized is that if he took away infant baptism, what he was essentially saying, he was essentially, uh, it was a treasonous act. He would be committing treason by saying, my baptism is no longer legal. That means I'm no longer a citizen of Switzerland. And he was already an army man. He was already invested in defending his country, and he knew very well um, if he committed treason, he would be executed. And the early founders of the Anabaptist movement uh, were very quickly executed when they rejected infant baptism, when they were rebaptized as adults. Because what they were essentially declaring at the time was, "I'm part of a new kingdom." And Anabaptists to this day will say that There's two kingdom theology the, the kingdom of the world And the kingdom of the church We are part of a different kingdom That's why, that's why we don't fight That's part of why we don't fight uh, Is because um, We don't believe that we're citizens of Canada Or of the States Or of Switzerland In the same way that other people do we, We're citizens of heaven And you can go back and listen to my podcast On uh, pacifism if you'd like I would submit to you That that issue has been dropped Even for Catholics, it's no longer a citizenship issue for the most part. Although, interestingly, my wife, born in in Quebec, um, in her hometown, actually, of Sherbrooke, um, she used to have a long-form birth certificate. And it was actually what she got when she was born. uh, And it was from a Catholic priest. Because that's even up to, I guess, 1983. Oops, I shouldn't tell my wife's birthday um, even up to recent days, uh, the Catholic Church, and probably in some parts of the world, it's still tied to citizenship. Um, but for many people, infant baptism now is not about um, citizenship. That's one thing. Also, for some people, for some Reformed folks, uh, after the Reformation and the ideas of Calvin and things like that, um, now I'm thinking about my... grandmother's side who who, uh, was raised in the Dutch Reformed Church and then uh, came to find freedom and spiritual life by leading the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, For some people, this idea of infant baptism was a way of signifying that they were part of the elect, and they were eternally secure, and they were chosen, and they were part of the in club, and if you're baptized as an infant, you're saved. That's it get confirmed later that's always a bonus but being baptized means that you're part of the elect Um, if that's what people believe by baptism either that in the catholic sense the baptism makes you saved or in a reformed sense some people might believe this that um, it makes you part of the elect I would completely reject that what um what people were expressing to me, and what uh, the past, what Bishop Charlie expressed when he preached on it, was that um, basically infant baptism for these Anglicans that I'm familiar with, uh, and this was also what I researched and what I found through my studies was it's basically the same thing that us Mennonites and Baptists would do through conf- through um, infant. Um, what do we say? You know when you have the baby in front and you pray for them and um, Dedication, baby dedications. We as as Mennonites and, and Pentecostals and Baptists, you got a kid. And it kind of feels like a big deal. And it kinda feels like, I'm a parent now. This is freaky. Um and A, you want to celebrate, and B, you want to just do something to say I'm going to do right by this kid as best as I can. And I need God's help and I need the community's help. And so we have baby dedications. And we take the baby up to the front, we hold them, the pastor puts their hand on them or whatever we do, and we dedicate the baby to the Lord. And basically, when I witnessed a baptismal service where they were baptizing babies, that's what they were doing. That's what the parents felt that they were doing, was dedicating the baby to the Lord. Um, And I can get behind that. Because if there's anything that, um, if there's another thing that I think that we've gone too far on, you know, if the pendulum has swung too far in one direction, you know, we, we believe in individualism, individual rights, individual expression, individual freedoms. We believe that each person should choose their own religion, for sure, for sure. But we also need to believe and know that our beliefs are networked and spliced and connected to the beliefs of our community. And scriptures enjoin us very strongly that we need to raise our children in our faith. Um, Deuteronomy talks about when when you sit down, when you stand up, when you... Um, eat and drink and and whatever you do be sharing your faith with your children speaking about the law of God Um, and most Christians that are Christian today are Christians because their parents were Christian Um, that's just how it is Most most atheists that are atheists today are atheists because their parents were atheists as well most Hindus you know you can go on um it's because our thoughts, it happens naturally. We can't avoid it. This is why we shouldn't give up the meeting together as brethren because if you only hang out with non-Christians pretty soon, you're going to find your thoughts resembling those of non-Christians. Um, we we network, we connect, We our, our thought patterns are connected with the thought patterns of those around us that we talk to, that we think with, that we do life with. And we are commanded to... Um, raise our children in our faith and all Christians across the board do this, we all do our best um, or we should do our best to raise our children in the faith that we have and then from there they can make their own decisions I mentioned this in the sermon I just preached on um, the heart of Christian parenting I asked the question, is it brainwashing to raise our children in the faith? and the answer is no Um, well, the answer is yes but you can't help it You can't help brainwashing your kids. Um, You can't help conveying your beliefs to your kids. Um, Maybe I'll do more of a specific podcast on that later because it is a a big topic, a big idea. Um, But we are commanded as Christians to pass on the faith to our kids. And um, I would be... I could not attend a church um, that believed, A, that baptism saves them. Either adult baptism or, or infant baptism. I couldn't do it. I couldn't attend a church that believed that infant baptism made them a citizen of their their city their, or their, their nation or whatever. Um, and that somehow baptism was tied up with citizenship or whatever. Um, I couldn't attend a church that felt that when you baptize either a kid or an adult, that automatically means they're elect. And that's the moment when they stand into, you know, they get saved or whatever. Um, it has to be the heart, you know. And if if, whether you confirm a kid as a baby or whether you baptize them as a baby, when they grow up, when they're young children especially, they're going to have to make their own decision. And we should be, as parents, intentional about leading them into the faith once handed down to us, which is life, which is godliness, which is health to their bodies and souls. Um, And so to me infant baptism the action itself of infant baptism is less important than what you mean by it uh and and so because I mean Catholics also do adult baptism a lot less commonly but they also do adult baptism and I would be opposed to Catholic adult baptism um opposed I mean I don't know what I would do if I was invited would I go I don't know um but I think they're doing it wrong, whether it's babies or adults, because it's what they think is happening. I don't agree that what they th- think is happening is happening. It's not the water that saves, but the cleansing of a, of a heart, it says in First Peter. Um, and so, um, I wouldn't baptize kids. But if people are going to baptize kids, uh, and, and for them it's a way of confirming them, or, or it's a way of dedicating them to the Lord and committing to raise them in the faith, I say more power to you. Uh, and and that isn't an issue for me. So I'm going to end the podcast there in part because I think I've said everything and in part because I got to where I need to go. Um, Follow-up podcast. You might be thinking this about me or about adding. Uh, I want to pose the question, how messed up can your theology be and you still be a Christian? Um... I've met Baptists. I've hung out with, with Catholics. I have been to Mennonite churches and Baptist churches and Brethren churches and now Anglican churches. And people believe very different things about God and Christianity. Uh, and some things they believe are, are downright wrong. But I still think they're Christians. So how messed up can your theology be for you to still be a Christian? And how do you make the judgment call between who's a heretic, who's not, who's in, who's out? and who are the folks that you can hang out with and worship with? How do you make those sorts of decisions? But we're going to especially look at the question, how messed up can your doctrines be? And you can still get into heaven. So I look forward to seeing you then. God bless.